Rudyard Kipling called them the silent cities of the Great War, the cemeteries where the dead, the fallen of that conflict lay. Here we return to discover more about their history. I've just returned from leading a Ledger battlefield tour, which we called the Silent Cities. And in that tour, we worked with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission today on the ground in Belgium and France to look at the story of the Imperial War Graves Commission at the end of the First World War and in those years following the Great War with the developments, the concentration and the construction of the permanent cemeteries of the First World War. It was a great tour to lead. We had four coachloads of us following different routes around those battlefields. We looked at three key areas of Arras, the Somme and Ypres and we worked with Commonwealth Wargraves Commission staff on the ground. Two of their excellent historians, Max Dutton and Linnell Howson, they accompanied us during the course of the week to give us further insights into the history of the cemeteries and the history of the work of the Wargraves Commission. And we got to meet a lot of staff on the ground who do the day-to-day work. We heard, amongst other things, how important worms are in the gardening aspects of the cemeteries. We learnt about the maintenance of the walls and of the headstones and of the crosses of sacrifice and the stones of remembrance. Some of the group got a chance to actually work with one of the stonemasons and see how they actually work on carving new bits of stone to replace others that have been damaged. We saw the equipment that they used to cut the grass because the cemeteries are not just these places where the dead of the Great War lie. They are much more than that. They are parts of the landscape, something we often say on this podcast. They sit there in that landscape. They're part of it. They're part of the natural aspect of that landscape. Nature is very much a part of these cemeteries. And we heard how the whole policy and the way maintenance is carried out to be more eco-friendly, for example, is now a major policy of the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission. That's a really great thing to hear. And you can see that reflected right across the cemeteries that I personally visit within Europe with the diverse nature of wildlife that you find. So we saw a lot of different insights and it was a great tour. And what I thought while I was on it was let's do a podcast version, if you like, of this tour and bring out some of the best bits of it. We've looked at the Silent Cities before. You can go back through the podcast catalogue to find some examples of that. But this is kind of drawing together what I did during the course of that tour and hopefully giving you some new insights into this subject as well. And as I said, we worked closely with the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission on this. They provided a lot of additional content for the tour that is not normally done when you visit, for example, the Commonwealth Wargraves Centre at BORA, the CWGC experience. And I'd like to thank all of the Commission staff who were there for us during the course of that week. And it was, as a proud dad, it was very nice to see my own daughter, Poppy, who now works for the Commission, doing her work as a guide and telling the groups about the history of the cemeteries and the recovery of the dead and all of the other aspects that the Commission represents. It was good too to meet some of the new CWGC interns who've just arrived both on the Somme and up in Flanders. And one thing I would say to you all, if you're not already a supporter of the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission Foundation, then it is well worth being a member of that. I joined it right at the beginning and I've been a member ever since. And the subscription that you pay helps fund a lot of the additional projects, including the interns that the Commission does. And that can only be a good thing. One aspect of what we did on that tour, which I can't replicate here on the podcast, is the lighting up of the Thietval Memorial. That, for me, and I think many of the people who travelled with us, was one of the highlights of the week, to go to mighty Thietval after dark and stand there and see it in darkness and see the memorial lit up. It added another kind of dimension to it in some respects. It wasn't at all gimmicky. It stood there as a true beacon in many ways on the landscape. We often refer to these cemeteries and memorials being those beacons, and it certainly looked like that. And approaching it as we did from the village of Ortui and seeing it lit up on the skyline there and then coming round and walking up to the monument, it really 
was impressive and we were lucky to have arranged that with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission but I hope it's something that going forward they might do on a more regular basis so many more people can experience that too. So let's head out on to the old Western Front and we'll do our Silent Cities, our return to the Silent Cities tour in three stages as we did on the actual battlefield tour itself. We'll look at Arras, the Somme and Ypres. We started our return to the Silent Cities at Arras in northern France, partly because the first port of call was to the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission experience, which is that free visitor centre you can go to to learn more about the history of what the Commission has done and what it does up to this day. But Arras is often an overlooked part of the British sector of the Western Front, but an important part of it. The British involvement there began in 1916 when the British line was extended south following the change of commands from Sir John French to Sir Douglas Haig. The British high commands agreed to extend the British line right down to the area close to the River Somme and the sector around Arras in early 1916 was taken over by the British. Prior to that, the French army had fought there in 1915 around Arras in what were called the Battles of Artois making attacks there on the high ground of Notre-Dame-de-Lorette and Hill 145 or Vimy Ridge as it was later known. That cost the French in that sector alone something like a quarter of a million casualties in 1915 and when the British arrived the evidence of that French fighting and the French losses would have been everywhere on that battlefield. But Arras then in 1916 was a quiet sector. There was no major attacks going on there and it was that kind of buffer zone between Flanders and the Somme and a lot of units recently arrived on the Western Front were posted there or units that were gradually moving from the Flanders sector down to the Somme or vice versa also served in that sector. Later in the war it was the scene of major battles, the Battle of Arras itself in April and May of 1917 when men from every part of the Commonwealth took part in the operations here with the attack by the Canadians on Vimy Ridge, the Australians at Bullecourt, New Zealand tunnelers working underneath Arras itself, and almost every regiment of the British Army taking part in the fighting around Arras itself in breaching the German Hindenburg Line defences. Later on, it became a quiet sector in 1917 until the following spring in 1918 when the Germans tried to break through on the Arras front. They got some ground, particularly around the, the city itself, but... The high point of Vimy Ridge remained in Allied hands and that led to another period of stagnant trench warfare until the Allied counter-offensive in the summer of 1918 when the Canadian Corps, having moved up from the Somme, took part in an attack east of Arras, pushed the Germans back and rolled up their defences, moving further and further into the Hindenburg Line to the drocourt quiont switch line and eventually beyond to the battlefields around Cambrai. So by the end of the Great War, although Arras had been in this position between those two well-known battlefields of Ypres in Flanders and the Somme to the south, it had seen major fighting and around the city of Arras there's something like well over 200 British and Commonwealth cemeteries from the First World War, from small battlefield cemeteries to larger cemeteries to behind-the-line cemeteries, quite a variety. And it's an area that deserves to have more visitors to understand the nature of the war and the different stories that we discover by visiting that part of the Great War battlefields. But we started this return to the Silent Cities at Bora. It was then a separate village at the time of the Great War, now a suburb of Arras, and that's where the headquarters of the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission in France are located and where the CWGC experience is. But for many years, since the very first time that I went down to that area of northern France, it was as the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission's HQ that I always saw it as, because that's where you went to to make inquiries about certain things. You could go in there through the main entrance, and into a reception area where you could, for example, trace soldiers who were killed in the Great War. Now, in those far-off days before the internet, when it wasn't quite so simple to discover where a soldier was buried or commemorated, you could come to an office like this, and they would look it up for you manually. And what you'd have to know is at least some details, because they had these huge, really quite beautiful volumes that were bound in leather, 
where each one was for a regiment. Some regiments that were so big, like Northumberland Fusiliers or the Manchesters, had more than one volume. And you looked in those alphabetically, and you found a name, and it gave you some details, and then it gave you a reference number, the cemetery number, or the memorial number where the soldier was commemorated. And you could then look that up in the registers, and there was a full set of registers there, and you could get further details. So it was a manual process, but quite nice in some ways to do it that way and interesting to see how that data had then been presented in that period after the first world war in places like this so that traces could be made it was also the place within france that you could come to to report any problems damage to cemeteries and also where farmers and people locally would ring them up and say that the remains of a soldier had been found there was a chief exhumations officer who would come out and recover the remains prior to reburial in a military cemetery. And a lot of staff worked here in those days doing the maintenance and the admin side of it all. And Norm Christie, who some of you know from his Great War books and his films and documentaries that he's made, worked here as a staff member in the early 90s, and I often used to pop in and see him and say hello. He was a very helpful individual in terms of tracking down information and also sharing stories of the Great War. Norm was excellent for that, and he's very generous with his knowledge, something we see to this day with all the material he's put out there over the years. It's still the headquarters today covering this vast area of France where there is well over 2,000 grave locations and cemeteries from the two world wars. It's not just the Great War battlefields that this office is responsible for. It is, for example, the graves at Dunkirk from 1940 and the memorial there, and of course the Normandy landings and the Battle of Normandy and the Bocage and beyond from 1944, as well as all the activities of air crews shot down over occupied France in the years between the Dunkirk evacuation and the liberation of France in 1944, and then all the other aspects of that as well with SOE and commandos and everything else. So it covers a really broad spectrum of the commemoration of the dead from two world wars and responsibilities, covering everything from small little French churchyards with perhaps one burial in, right through to the vast cemeteries from the Great War, like St. Saver at Rouen or Etaples on the coast, and then some of the big ones on the battlefields themselves, like Cabaret Rouge or Serre Road Number 2. It's also the place where human remains are kept prior to reburial, kept in a very respectful manner and these days so much work is done to try and identify the remains of soldiers that are found and as we discovered when we were on the tour from Stefan who is the uh, anthropologist one of one of the anthropologists who works with the commission at the moment we discovered all these different things that have been going on some of them during the covid period with the construction of wind farms and soldiers remains have been found there new roads and a, a new building project around Lens has resulted in the discovery of, in many ways, unprecedented numbers of soldiers' remains that will eventually be reburied in existing cemeteries or extensions to existing cemeteries. So the work, again, we often say it on the podcast, the last page of the Great War will never be turned, and we've seen that on this tour that we did very, very visibly by hearing about the work that Stefan and his colleagues undertake to try and recover the identity of these lost soldiers of the Great War. And listening to him speak and, and talking to other Commission staff as well, this is obviously very rewarding work for them because they're giving a soldier his identity back, lost in the mud of the Somme or Arras or whatever battlefield it is, having been recovered more than a century after the Great War has ended, it's a miracle, really, that it's even possible to identify these soldiers and a testimony to the people that's doing this work, both with the Commission and the wider military and, and government authorities that are involved in this, that every effort is made to give an identity, but even when that is not possible and the nature of Great War battlefields are that sometimes it isn't possible they're still buried with full honours in a military grave amongst their comrades who fell more than a century ago. So having started in the very heart of the work of the Commission in terms of the maintenance and the ongoing work associated with the dead of the Great War and those buried in the silent cities, 
We then move to the Arras Memorial to the Missing and the Faubourg Damien Cemetery, which is located just alongside it. The Arras Memorial and the cemetery itself, designed by Sir Edwin Lutyens, one of the chief architects of the Commission after the First World War, whose work really is a defining legacy of what we see within the silent cities and on the memorials to the missing today. He didn't design them all, obviously, but his hand is very present, ever present, really, when you visit these places. But the Arras Memorial gave us an opportunity to look at the Arras sector and discover that high proportion of missing for that part of the Western Front. There's over 35,000 names on the Arras Memorial. There's every regiment of the British Army on there. There are Commonwealth names from South Africa. The South African Brigade, part of the 9th Scottish Division, fought at Arras in 1917 in the early stages of the battle, and their missing from that period of the war are commemorated on this Memorial to the Missing. And at the other ends, on panel one, we find naval names, Royal Marines and Royal Naval Volunteer Reservists of the Royal Naval Division who were in action at Gavrel in April 1917 at Arras and then in some of the later battles of 1918 fighting alongside the Canadians. And it gives us an opportunity with the Arras Memorial to talk about how soldiers are missing, what leads to a soldier becoming missing because Arras being rolling chalk down land, although it does get muddy, it's not like Flanders, not like the battles around Eat where we know so much disappeared into the mud there more at Arras, the missing aspect is soldiers who could not be identified when their remains were recovered. And I remember when I was researching my book, Walking Arras, one of the things that I found in quite a lot of the war diaries that I looked at was instructions to remove soldiers' identification from them before they went into battle. So hand in their dog tags, hand in their shoulder titles, hand in their pay book, because there was a fear that soldiers and units would be identified and give the Germans some intelligence upper hand in what was going on on that part of the Western Front. Now, whatever the reason, and it's not a universal practice that, that took place there at Arras in 1917, but when we look at the Battle of 1917 at Arras, with the fighting from the 9th of April through to the middle of May 1917, we see that there are so many dates where a very, very high proportion of the dead are missing and commemorated on the panels of this memorial. 3rd of May 1917 is one example of that, when the British attacked on a wide front at Arras with the Canadians to the north, just like it happened at the beginning of the battle, and the Australians to the south at Bullecourt. And when we look at the dead for all those different sectors, in some cases, well over 80% of those who died that day their names are listed on the memorial here. There has to be a reason for that. It could be the fighting later at Arras. It could be the destructive power of the artillery to destroy the remains of soldiers left in no man's land that couldn't be recovered. It could be lost cemeteries out there still on the battlefield. Or it could be that bodies were recovered, but if no one went into battle with a paybook or any dog tags, they couldn't be identified if they were buried by someone else. Who knows? But these are the kind of questions that visits to sites like this inspire us to think about, really. And that's an important part of what we get from our visits to the battlefields of the Great War. Looking at the memorial as well, it gives us a chance to talk about individual stories. And when we were here, we spoke about Walter Tull, one of the first black officers in the British Army. We covered his story in a previous podcast episode. He joined up at being a professional footballer in the football battalion of the Middlesex Regiment was wounded in the fighting at Delville Woods in August of 1916, then recovered from those wounds, applied for a commission, was given a commission in his regiment, the Middlesex Regiment, and then went off to Italy with them during that winter of 1917 and then returned to the Western Front to fight in the area just south of Arras on the border of the Somme where he was killed in the German offensive of March 1918 as the British Army pulled back through that area and his body was never found. His story is widely known now and it gives us an opportunity to talk about that wider aspect of black soldiers in the British Army and, and dispel some of the myths about it. And I suspect many, many people now stand here in front of Walter Tull's name on the Arras Memorial and do just that and that can only be a good thing. It also gave me an opportunity to talk about Alf Rizel, one of the great war veterans I knew, and his pal Bill Hubbard, William Hubbard, who was commemorated here on the Royal Fusilier panels. Alf was... A soldier captured at Arras with the Fusiliers on the 3rd of May 1917 near Pelves 
and as he was being led away by his German captors, he saw his wounded comrade Bill Hubbards in a shell hole with a, a wound that Alf knew would kill him. But he did what he could to try and recover him, promised him he'd come back with some German stretcher bearers, but it wasn't possible. And Bill was lost, something that haunted Alf for much of the rest of his life until John Nichols, who wrote the fantastic book Cheerful Sacrifice about the Battle of Arras, John brought Alf back here in the 1990s and Alf stood there as we stood there in front of the Royal Fusilier panels looking at that vast list of names. It was a big regiment, the Royal Fusiliers, and there was Hubbard, W, Bill Hubbard. And for Alf, he said it was it laid ghosts for him. He realised that Bill wasn't lost after all. He was listed here and the power of that for him was so strong. And this led us, when we were standing in front of that panel on this tour to talk about what seeing names on memorials like this meant to not just the families who came back but to the veterans who'd fought alongside these men and seen their comrades killed and had to live with that and had to live with the memory of that and how powerful that was as it was for Alf for them to have the chance to come back and see those names and see the graves of the men that they'd lost, the friends that they'd lost. So it again it shows just so much you can take from a simple visit just to one place in some respects you could spend all day in one place talking about the great war but we moved on into the cemetery as well and we had a look at that it's an interesting cemetery the Falberg Damien cemetery that is located alongside the Arras memorial it was a cemetery where there were French graves when we took over in 1916 they've subsequently been removed many of them to the French National Cemetery at Notre Dame de Lorette but it's a cemetery that's unusual, and again, when we're looking at, at silent cities and looking at the different types of cemeteries that there are from the Great War, this is a good example of this in that it's in date order. So the original burials start at the far end, and they work their way through the chronology of the war, and you can follow the course of the fighting around Arras. And because this was close to the site of medical facilities, so some of these men died of their wounds, and it was used as a frontline burial site by units serving in the Arras sector, the vast majority of the men buried in here are known soldiers. So that means we know who they are. We know their background, their regiments, where they died, the circumstances of their death. And it means in a cemetery like this, we get a good cross-section of the sort of men that fought in this part of the battlefield. These are the men of Arras. These are those who came here and they, they give us a clue to that generation that fought in this part of the Western Front into who they were, what motivated them, what they thought about the fighting and the types of men that came here, everything from a Russian soldier, there's a Russian grave here, one of our allies who's escaping, having been brought over forcibly by the Germans to work on the Hindenburg Line during that winter of 1916-17, he got away only to be shot accidentally by British troops in the front line who confused him for a German soldier. So we've got a Russian soldier right through to British battalion commanders, there's Colonel Sansom, his adjutant Gilbert Nagel of the 7th Royal Sussex, lying side by side, killed in the steps of a dugout at Montchilapreux as a German shell came straight through the front door and killed them both instantly after the Battle of Arras was over. Sansom was an older man in his 50s, the headmaster of a school in Sussex, and he lay there dead on those dugout steps with a letter in his pocket from the war office saying that at last he could go home to resume his headmastership. There are so many stories like this in the more than 2,600 graves at the Falberg Damion Cemetery. And in terms of dates, it goes to right after the war itself. There's a plot of Indian soldiers and German prisoners of war who died almost certainly of influenza in, in the months after the armistice. So it's an interesting cemetery, and I think one that's easy to overlook uh, how important it is, really, in terms of the history of the Great War in this sector of the Arras part of the Western Front. So this was one of the big cemeteries that we visited here, but then we went out onto the battlefields themselves in that rolling chalk downland that surrounds the city of Arras. Out there, where the Hindenburg Line had run, where the fighting was at its fiercest, we went to have a look at some of the battlefield cemeteries. Now this part of the Western Front is unusual and it has a very high proportion of these original battlefield burial sites. Why is this? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it could be for a number of reasons that many of these cemeteries, as we discovered, were collective burials where men had been buried in shell holes or mine craters or parts of an old trench system, for example. 
and that the recovery and then moving of those remains would be very difficult. So a decision was made to keep these smaller cemeteries. And what it does, I think, on the battlefields, looking at the cemeteries as being beacons to the Great War, giving us a clue as to what actually happened in those places, it gives us a greater understanding between the connection of the past to the present landscape, with the cemeteries being almost our portal to that, because the cemeteries are not there by accident. When we go out to a place where there was fighting and we see small battlefield cemeteries dotted across that part of the landscape and we look at the regiments that are represented amongst the burials and the dates, we get a clue into the history of those locations. And that's exactly what we did on this tour. We stopped at Heninal Quasi Road Cemetery, which is one of these, it's one of the larger isolated cemeteries out in the fields there. And you can access it quite easily now because there's a big wind farm being put on that part of the landscape. And they've upgraded a lot of the roads, giving you better access to what was there before. Previously, it was really an area that you could only walk or access by walking the ground. One of the reasons I wrote Walking Arras all those years ago. But this cemetery, the Henin or Quasi Road Cemetery, is an interesting one. There's 297 British burials, 10 Australian 11 German, and of these, 104 are unidentified. And again, when we look at how you kind of read a cemetery, when you go in there, I'm sure to some people they all look the same. But once you start looking at the cat badges and you're kind of joining the dots in terms of the order of battle of those units, you discover that there are distinct patterns to cemeteries like this. So this one has a higher representation of men from the 33rd Division that fought on this part of the Hindenburg Line in front of the village of Quasi and Fontaine de Quasi in April of 1917. The war poet Siegfried Sassoon served in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers in that division, for example, and w was wounded up here at that time. And once you know all that and you know the order of battle of that division, you start to see some of its key units that were in action in this place. Men of the Royal Fusiliers from the Public Schools Battalion, for example, Sassoon's own Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and the Cameronians, the Scottish Rifles, are also taking part in the fighting at this particular point. And we see that in some parts of the cemetery, there are mini collective graves where there's rows of headstones, where there are multiple names on the headstones indicating these men are buried together, very much the nature of these isolated battlefield burial sites. The German graves are interesting because the Germans swept through here in that spring offensive of March of 1918 and they tacked on their own little plots and when we look at the German graves they're largely from that March 1918 period. And it was a site chosen to move in some isolated graves from the surrounding area so when we look at the 10 Australian graves that are in this cemetery they're from the fighting around Bullecourt effectively on the other side of the hill from where we stand when we visit this site. From there we went round to Cuckoo Passage Cemetery. I mean there are some really great names for these silent cities. When you look through the book of that name, which was published just after the war, and I'll put a link to that on the podcast website, it was a kind of guidebook really to the cemeteries published in this beautifully blue bound book in the 1920s. And there's a reprint of it by the Naval and Military Press. And it lists them all, well almost all of them that were completed by that stage when the book was was published and when you look at some of the names there are some very intriguing names cuckoo passage being one of them just down the road was rookery cemetery and not far away bootham cemetery as well and all of these named after the trenches that were on this part of the battlefield so in some ways these are trench cemeteries and again they reflect the fighting when we come to cuckoo passage well first of all we've we've got to get there so you park up on the road whether that's in a car or, in our case, the road's wide enough now to get a coach quite close to it. But the final bit is on foot, and accessing it, you go through a sunken lane. Now, rolling chalk downlands is famous for its sunken lanes, and there are many well-known sunken lanes in different parts of the British sector. The one at Beaumont Hamill and the Somme obviously springs to mind for most people. But this one, on a massive open landscape, any kind of position where you could at least get some cover and a sunken lane would offer you that was really important and I've told this story in a previous podcast but one of my best veteran pals Malcolm Vivian who was a forward observation officer a foo in a siege battery of the Royal Garrison Artillery this is where he was spotting for his guns in the fighting in this area in April and May of 1917 when his unit was bunker 
busting. They were using their 9.2-inch howitzers to crack open German machine guns, and he was commissioning air photos to take pictures of the bunkers so they could properly sight the guns up. He was then spotting for the guns on the ground. They were sending shells over to destroy the bunkers, then they commissioned more air photos to make sure they'd done the job. Anyway, he was here in this sunken lane with his signalling team, spotting for the guns when he got a little bit too carried away with what he was doing. He was up on the bank of this sunken lane and his signal corporal realised what was about to happen, grabbed him by his belt and pulled him down the lane just as a shell struck the position where he'd been spotting from. So that saved his life. And every time I walk up here, I think of him. And you can still find traces of the Great War in these sunken lanes where the tractors move backwards and forwards all the time. I mean, there's an atmosphere for a start. I think that places like this are very atmospheric when you come to the battlefields of the Great War. But as I was walking down the track, I picked up a German cartridge, 7.92 cartridge, dated 1916, made in Dortmund, and there's a little bit of fragment of the Great War easily findable in places like that. The archaeology of this is kind of everywhere, really. And as you come out the far end of the sunken lane, there's a little path, grass path, that goes off to the right. That's where the cemetery cuckoo passage is signed. And you go up there and across the fields of the cemetery itself. And it sits there once upon a time and in isolation with only other cemeteries around it. Now with this modern wind farm, the landscapes always change. Whatever we think about these kind of renewable energy sources, the landscape changes. And they add something to it, I think, in some ways. that It reflects the changing of the world, the changing of the world around these places. They never quite sit in isolation, even when it seems that they are. But you walk up to the cemetery and there is this cluster of graves with a common denominator of cat badge, which is the, the city coat of arms of Manchester, from the Manchester Regiment. These are men from Manchester Powell's battalions who fought in this area in April of 1917. And we've got a collective grave here of men killed in that part of the fighting and buried on this site, close to the site of the trenches that they've been fighting over. And again, probably because of the fact that it is a collective grave, this is why this small burial site wasn't closed and moved into somewhere else after the war. But it is also, when you look at that, when you see that there is a common denominator with cap badge that these men had served in battalions, had served side by side, it's what Martin Middlebrook called a comrade cemetery in that respect, men who'd served together, trained together, crossed to France together, been in the trenches together and died together are now still buried together more than a century later. And I think that has its own power when you visit sites like this as well. So standing there as our day around Arras came to an end, we could see the new world encroaching on the old one, but the old one still having its power, its power to move, its power to make us think. And that I think is what we get and one of the things we get a lot from coming to sites like this and it's good to go to the big cemeteries it's good on tours to visit the popular sites if that's the word to use the ones that people expect to see but it's also good to come to isolated places like this and see that the work and the commission in these obscure corners of the battlefields of the great war is just as good just as high quality as you'd expect as any other part of the western front and then from there, with our day at Arras over, next day we were on the Somme. Beginning our day with the silent cities of the Somme, where do we start? Martin Mirabrook talks about, I think, over 300 British and Commonwealth cemeteries from the Great War in the Department of the Somme. And what we did was start at Forceville Communal Cemetery and Extension because this was one of the places, one of three places, where experimental cemeteries were established. Two of those three on the Somme, Forceville and just up the road, Louvencourt, and the third one on the French coast. And the idea was to put forward the existing ideas that the architects of the Imperial, the then Imperial Wargraves Commission had in the permanent cemeteries and what they would look like actually put those into practice, create these three experimental cemeteries and then get people to visit them to see what they thought and give feedback. And what we see in them is the original concepts and ideas of the Imperial Wargraves Commission and we can see how some changes were subsequently made. So when we come to Forcefield Communal Cemetery and Extension, first of all, it's tucked behind a French civil cemetery. So that is a different atmosphere altogether. And that was something that 
the groups that we took there commented on. They weren't expecting that. They thought it would just be a big British cemetery by the side of a road or up a path, and there it was, tucked away behind the crumbling graves of many generations of French people who'd lived in that village of Forceville, a village that was behind the British lines, so this is not a front-line burial site. It was close to medical facilities, so some of the men buried in there died of their wounds. Others were brought in uh, from the battlefields as casualties, having been killed in the front-line area or in attacks and then brought here for burial. It was a cemetery used extensively by the Ulster Division at one stage, for example, so we see a lot of men from the Thiepval sector buried in here. And it had begun, as many cemeteries on the Somme front that were used by the British had, it started as a French cemetery. So there'd originally been French burials in there. British burials were made from September 1915 onwards, so nine months or so before the Battle of the Somme began. And it was a cemetery that remained in use well up into 1918. There's quite a lot of April 1918 graves in here from when the front line following the German breakthrough in the spring of 1918, wasn't that far away. There are 299 British burials, six German, two New Zealand and one Canadian. And again, because of the nature of the cemetery, that these are men who died of their wounds or were killed in the front line and brought back for burial by their comrades, the vast majority of those buried in here are identified. But there's one who isn't, and that's an interesting headstone in its own right because this was the first grave of an unknown soldier in which they had to come up with some wording as to how to describe that grave who was it what did it represent they couldn't name the soldier but how would they describe him for most of you looking at unknown graves in cemeteries you will be familiar with the words later chosen by kipling a soldier of the great war known unto god but this grave has a very different inscription on it, and this is it. In honour of a British soldier, name unknown, 2nd of July 1916, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Now that's quite a lengthy inscription, and I think when they looked at cemeteries where they knew there were large numbers of unknown soldiers or unidentified soldiers, and they looked at the cost of engraving a headstone with that lengthy inscription on it, they realised there was a cost implication there. So a decision was made to simplify it. It was too lengthy, they felt. And that's where Kipling came in and suggested the wording that was adopted for the later cemeteries and the wording that we know now. When we cast our eyes across the graves in this experimental cemetery, it's not so much the, the layouts. There is a stone of remembrance, which the cemetery isn't really big enough for a stone of remembrance, but one was put in there so people could see how that worked within a cemetery. But when we look at the actual headstones, and bearing in mind what we know from visiting other cemeteries, we see some differences. We see a different typeface for the way the headstones were engraved, the font, I'm not sure, not being an expert on fonts, I'm not sure what font was actually used, but this is different to some of the other, the majority of the other cemeteries. We see some difference in design with cap badges. Again, I think that they looked at the way some of these had been engraved and they were quite complex, so simplified versions of them were done. And one thing that I've noticed every time I've come here is the positioning of the age. We normally see age listed after the date of death, so 1st of July 1916, aged 18. But on these headstones, it's at the top part of the cross. So where the tip of the cross is, just below the naming, the age is placed there. And I'll put some photographs of Forceville with these differences on, on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk. And one thing I will add is the different designs of naval badges that we see in this cemetery they hadn't really decided how the graves of men in the Royal Naval Division what type of badge they would use and there are three different designs for it on headstones in this cemetery I remember some years ago a retired admiral I think had come here and seen these graves and said it was not the appropriate badge for men of the Royal Navy it was a badge that had never been worn and he wanted to see it change thankfully the commission didn't do that because these headstones are pieces of their own history pieces of all our history in their own right the way these were engraved the types of designs the font and all that is important in our understanding of how these cemeteries develop so this is when a cemetery becomes not just a place where the dead are commemorated 
and where the history of the conflict, in this case the Battle of the Somme, can be understood through the graves and the stories of the men that are buried in here, but it becomes a part of history in its own right, in that the way it's designed and the methods that were used to construct it and place details on the headstones, all of that is part of our wider understanding of how these silent cities developed. We then contrasted, as we did at Arras, a cemetery away from the battle area with ones that were up on the front line in places where they'd been fighting and that bodies were later recovered and buried on the spot where the fighting had taken place. And we did that up at Serre. We parked up at Serre Road number one cemetery, the original plot at the back, was made as with all these Serre Road cemeteries after the Battle of the Somme was over when graves were concentrated in from that area, from areas of no man's land, from the German trenches, from the German wire, and buried in these collective graves. And then in the case of Serre Road number one and number two, graves, large numbers of graves were then moved in from a wider, wider area. And Serre Road number two up the road becoming the largest Somme cemetery with 7,500 graves. But that's not what we'd come to see. We'd come to see the battlefield cemeteries up on the high ground in front of the village of Serre. And we walked our way up the track. No sign of the farmer. It was all quiet on that part of the Western Front. We found as we walked up the track a Mills bomb embedded in the track itself, brushed clean in some respects by the movement of vehicles and tractors going up and down that track probably over quite some time. And as we come up over the rise, we got to Serre Road number three, the third of those Serre Road cemeteries. And here, it's an interesting part of the Somme, an interesting part of the British sector of the Western Front, in that we talk about beacons on the landscape, and here you can see that very vividly, because when you go into the entrance of Serre Road number three, and you look at its cross, and you look to the left of its cross, you're looking straight down the middle of no man's land there, and you can see two other crosses just beyond it. The cross, the cross of sacrifice of Queen Cemetery at Bukoy, just across the fields from this one, and then beyond that, the cross of sacrifice in Luke Cop Cemetery, up against close to the site of the British front line there. So these three little cemeteries alone mark this part of the battlefield where the fighting took place. And standing here in Cerro number three and looking at the cat badges again. And looking at the dates, we see the two ends of the Battle of the Somme, the 1st of July 1916 and the 13th of November 1916, when on those two days attacks were made at the beginning to try and break through here, and at the end in very different conditions, poor weather, thick mud, and the troops failed to break through yet again on this part of the front because of the conditions and the dominance of the German line here. And we see that reflected. And when we know the story behind that, that these men were not recovered, until the Germans withdrew from this area in 1917. So in the case of the men killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, their bodies had lain out there on the battlefield for all those months from July 1916 through to the early spring of 1917. It's a miracle that any of them were ever identified. And amongst them we find men from the 15th Battalion, the West Yorkshire Regiment, the Leeds Powers, and this cemetery really pretty much marks the high tide mark of that battalion's advance on the first day of the Somme and when you look back across the cemetery it's only a small cemetery with just over 80 burials you can see the track that you've just walked down on the other side of that track was the British front line where the Leeds powers went over the top and there's no distance at all between where you're standing and where they went into battle and it brings to mind that story that fictionalized story of the Sheffield City Battalion Covenants with Death by John Harris and that epitaph that he gave to them which really applies to all of those Powell's battalions that fought here on the first day of the Somme two years in the making ten minutes in the destroying that was our history and that feels especially poignant when you look along the rows of the graves of those Powell's buried in small battlefield cemeteries like this one and then from Serre we made our way across to Tiapval to the Tiapval Memorial to the Missing the mighty, mighty Luchens design memorial that commemorates more than 72,000 soldiers who are the missing of the Somme. Every regiment of the British Army, Royal Naval Division names, South Africans from the Commonwealth, and then behind it the Anglo-French Cemetery with 300 British graves and 300 French graves symbolising the joint sacrifice of both nations on the Somme in 1916. Here we return to the subject of the missing and and what missing soldiers meant to those who were left to deal with the aftermath of it.
for families who had no grave to visit, no sepulchre to stand by and accept that someone was never coming home with the missing, there was always that hope that someone might return. And there are so many stories of mothers and sisters and wives hoping beyond hope that one day there'll be a knock at the door. And women in that interwar period going down to their local town, their local market, their local railway station, whatever it is, and seeing a young man who resembled their lost one, tapping them on the shoulder, hoping it was them, but of course it wasn't. Their fate had ended in places like this on the battlefields of the Great War. And we spoke about how the women of that period were as much casualties of the Great War as the men that they'd lost, having to deal with the terrible grief of having lost a brother, a husband, a father. How did you live the rest of your life? Under what shadows did you live your life? All of this is something that we considered when we came here and and looked along these long list of names. And it's so easy just to scan your eyes across these lists as if it's nothing. But each one of those represents a life. Someone who loved and was loved. Someone who hoped and dreamed and no doubt thought of a world, of a life beyond the Great War. But it was never to be. It's a memorial of 72,000 what-ifs. What if these men had lived? How would Britain, how would all their nations and the places from which they came, how would they be different? What lives would have been changed by their lives? We can only but imagine, and I think this is the thing that we think of every time we come to places like this. It's too easy for the missing to be anonymous, and that's why the stories of some of the men who are represented on these panels are so important. And it's nice to come here for those that you know who have their own relatives listed on these walls who they haven't as yet had a chance to come and see themselves. And I did that for a friend whose great-uncle is on the Royal Fusilier panels. And for me, coming here as part of this visit... Thietval's been under wraps for well over two years. We couldn't visit it because of COVID. It was being renovated and it needed a lot of work doing to it. And you could see the benefits of the work that's been done here. But scaffolding free and renovation free, you could wander about it once more. It was like coming home to an old friend and looking up into the vastness of the archways above you and the never-ending names and then walking out down the steps into the cemetery and looking back and seeing how it sits there, sunlit on that landscape, looking out across some of the crumbling trenches in the woods and the fields around it, but across the rolling nature of that Somme landscape, the true texture of the Somme. It's a Marmite monument to many who come here. They either like it or they don't, but it's an impressive one either way, and it dominates this part of the British sector of the Western Front, and amazing how many places you can go to on the Somme and somehow still see it. And from Thiepval, we then went behind the lines on the Somme. This is something that we've covered in podcasts before, and there are quite a few looking at different aspects of behind the lines on the Somme. And we went to two cemeteries that reflect this, Wailoi Ballon Communal Cemetery and Extension and Highly Station Cemetery. At Wailoi Ballon, we went down the road that runs from Amiens up to Arras. And we just had a podcast about how World War I meets World War Two, and that's a road on which that certainly happened, both in 1940 and 1944. And it's reflected in that cemetery with the grave of a Canadian pilot in the RAF who was shot down there in 1940 and an air observation pilot of the Royal Artillery who was killed in the village reconnoitering for an airstrip for his Oster aircraft, which would spot for the artillery in September of 1944, on the very day that the village was liberated. And the road itself was then used by British troops in their advance on Arras. The Guards Armoured Division, for example, sent their Welsh Guards Reconnaissance Regiment up that road to be the first to enter Arras at that time. But in terms of the Great War graves, when we went in there, it's quite a big cemetery, Wailoi Ballon. The original communal cemetery plot has only 46 graves. There are more French graves there than British, 158 French graves. But in the main plot, there are 1,360, of which 867 are British, 321 Australian, 152 Canadian, 
There are 17 Germans and three whose unit are unidentified. And again, when you read a cemetery like this, you can see the different stages of the Battle of the Somme from the early advances through to the final engagements. And when you understand that this is a, a cemetery close to the medical facilities, the units and the battles represented by the graves, it's not an accident because the British set up linear routes of evacuation in certain areas. So if you were wounded at Montauban, you went in one direction. If you were wounded at La Boiselle, you went in another direction. And if you were wounded at Thiepval or Beaumont Hamel or wherever it was, you went in another direction. So you weren't all sent to the same medical facilities because it would overwhelm them. So what we see in here is a reflection of the middle part of the Somme. Pozieres reflected with the Australian graves, the fighting at Corselet and Regina Trench with the Canadian graves, and then that area around Thiepval and up towards the Ancre Valley represented amongst the British burials. But there are some exceptions to this. Buried in here is the most senior British soldier to die on the Somme, in 1916, Major General Ingerville Williams commanding the 34th Division. Known as Inky Bill to his troops, he'd brought the division over to France in early 1916 and had watched it being annihilated on the first day of the Battle of the Somme in the attack on La Boiselle when it had suffered over 6,000 casualties in a single day. But it had remained on the Somme. It moved forward into the area close to Mamet's Ward and near to Contal Maison, and during that fighting there, he'd come up for a personal reconnaissance of the ground. Again, we often try to dispel the Chateau General's myth, and this is one example of that. He could have been in a chateau miles beyond the lines, but he came up on a reconnaissance, parked up his staff car at the bottom of a, a sunken bit of road, went up the bank to observe the fighting, and putting himself in danger like that, he took one risk too many and paid for that with his life. He was brought here for burial, and so that makes this a cemetery that covers every rank in the British Army from private to Major General, a man that in, on paper commanded more than 20,000 soldiers. And then travelling to Highly Station Cemetery, we were able to weave in the importance of railways there. It's a cemetery named after a local railway station where part of the railway track was tapped off to create a siding for the hospital trains so they could evacuate the wounded further down the evacuation chain to the base hospitals. So we're able to explain all that, and that's the importance of cemeteries like this in our wider understanding of how the wounded were treated and how, sadly, many men didn't make it beyond medical facilities like this because one of the great killers was infection, and with no antibiotics there was no way of stemming that infection, and many men died of the infected wounds that they came off the battlefield with. And we see that very clearly here with closely packed rows of graves. And again, when we look at that, we see an unusual, unique feature in this cemetery with a wall displaying the cap badges of the men buried in those plots where they're buried side by side. I mean, they're not all just buried in mass graves. In many cases, they're probably buried in coffins. And what would happen is that the medical personnel would pre-prepare trenches, basically. And when soldiers died in the casualty clearing station, they would be brought in here for burial. Also in here, which gives us a chance to talk about the whole ethos of the War Graves Commission, is the private memorial on the grave of an Australian soldier from the 13th Battalion AIF, which is not a Commonwealth headstone. It's a monument that was placed there by his comrades during the war. It's a tall column with a cross on the top. And it gives us an insight into if the government had not stepped in and taken charge of these cemeteries and given the required funds that enabled uniformity in death so that no one had to pay for a marker on a grave, a headstone on a grave, and it meant that Mrs Smith from the back streets of Manchester, her son would have the same grave as the son of a titled family. And if that had not been done, then we would see monuments like this, and on many of the graves, perhaps nothing. And so it really reinforces in many ways the whole importance of that early ethos of the Imperial War Graves Commission. So with our day on the Somme done, we headed north to Flanders to the ground around Ypres. Our look into the history and the stories behind the silent cities ended with a visit to Flanders. There's so much again that you could visit in Flanders to really understand this part of Great War history. And we began at Bedford House where we learnt more about the kind of work that the gardeners do on the ground 
and the horticulture and the conservation that's going on and all those aspects that are beyond the history in many respects. But it gave me a chance to wander around the cemetery and have a think about this site. We've done a previous podcast on Bedford House, but wandering around it again, and when we went to the area where the gardeners keep all their tools and equipment and where their compost site is, that was a, an important part of our understanding of the work that they do, one thing that we gleaned from this visit, brought me into the ruins of the chateau that dominated this site because this is an unusual cemetery Bedford House in the way that it's laid out. It's laid out in the grounds of a chateau. As you come in through the old chateau entrance, there's the moat of the chateau, some of the outbuildings, and then the plots, the enclosures were laid out around where the main building was. And this particular chateau, the Chateau Rosendahl or Woodcote House or Bedford House, as it was known to British and Commonwealth forces, that served here during the Great War, it was a a dressing station for men coming back from the front line between the area close to Hill 60, the area known as the Brandon Molen and the Bluff, the old Epcoming Canal sector. Men brought back from that sector were brought here for treatment and units in the front line there often buried their dead here as well. And there were several of these enclosures, mini cemeteries built around the Chateau building. And going into the works area of the cemetery, I'd forgotten in some respects that that's where the main chateau building was, something that I'd not been in to see for many years. You can see the steps and part of the cellar. And I remembered, and we had that podcast recently about 40 years on the Western Front, when I first came here with my school in 1982, we came up to the ruins of the chateau here. And I remember looking with my pal Andrew down into the steps of the cellar, which was water-filled, and seeing a kidney-shaped dish floating around in the water and not realising that that was probably almost certainly a bit of medical equipment that was still in there from the Great War. wasn't there on the uh, the last visit, I hasten to add. But this is a big cemetery. There's over 5,000 burials here. There are graves from both the First and the Second World War, so it's another one of those places where the Great War meets the Second Great War. Men who were killed in the fighting around Ypres in May 1940, particularly in this southern area south of Ypres, they were brought in here for burial post-war, many of them once buried in isolated graves close to the spots where they'd fallen in that retreat towards Dunkirk. But the other thing that we learned by looking at the history behind the enclosures is how some cemeteries were closed and moved into here after the war. So in one of the enclosures were 265 graves that had once constituted the Asylum Cemetery at Ypres. Now, the Asylum is a big building on the western side of Ypres, on the road to Popperinger. It was a lunatic asylum, and it was taken over by the Royal Army Medical Corps as a big building that was suitable for a medical establishment where they could receive soldiers coming in wounded off the battlefield and treat them properly within the thick walls of this building. And, of course, soldiers died of their wounds there, and they were buried in the asylum cemetery at the back of the asylum. And I think a decision was made to close that cemetery, which probably on different location might well have been kept, because of its name. Did you really want to have families thinking, doubting somehow the circumstances of their son's death? If he's buried in an asylum cemetery, what happened to him? So respecting the potential feelings of those families... It looks as if a conscious decision was made to close that cemetery and move it into Bedford House and kind of disguise the place from which those graves had come somehow. Although I would guess during the war they must have received letters from chaplains or medical personnel saying that that's where they were buried. We see it as well in in Ypres itself with the Reservoir Cemetery. That was once called the Prison Cemetery because it's at the back of Eat Prison, another building that was used by the Medical Corps for exactly the same reasons as the asylum, because it was a big building, it had lots of rooms, suitable for a, a medical facility, and there the name of the cemetery was changed to disguise the fact that it was located at the rear of a prison. So, again, we kind of get these interesting glimpses into the history behind these cemeteries, the naming of these cemeteries, and the context of the cemeteries as well. And again, that's all part of what we discover by visiting them and researching the stories behind those who were buried there. We also contrasted the battlefield area burials with behind the lines in Flanders, and we went to Lissenherk Cemetery, once the the largest British cemetery from the Great War. The post-war Michelin 
battlefield guide to he quoted i think more than twenty thousand burials in there i mean there wasn't it was just over ten thousand but at that time it was one of the largest when you compare it to a tarpler and st saver which have similar numbers it was one of the largest british cemeteries from the conflict only eclipsed by the creation of tynecott cemetery after the war but it remains a very important cemetery we've covered it again in a previous podcast and it represents this huge cross-section of the British Army that came to Flanders in the Great War. Not just men, there's Nellie Spindler, a British Army nurse buried there, one of only a handful of women killed on the battlefield serving with British nursing units. She's one of two nurses killed in the Third Eat period, one buried just down the road at Godersveld, just across the border in France, and she's one of only two women who served with British and Commonwealth forces to be buried on Belgian soil. The other one died of influenza and is buried in Brussels. So it's a very important grave, and many school groups come here to see and understand the important role of women in the Great War, and it acts in itself, this this headstone acts as a beacon to that aspect of Great War history. But the cemetery reflects this broad spectrum of different people from different countries from what was then the Empire, now the Commonwealth, and indeed beyond that with the plot of graves of men from the Chinese Labour Corps who are in here, men from China brought over as Labour troops who served behind the lines and then worked on the battlefields after the war to clear them up and to help in the construction of the cemeteries and the recovery of the dead. And what we see here, while the cemetery obviously remains a permanence in terms of that cemeteries are never changed, there's some remedial work done to them in here there's been some issues with some trees that have been sorted in the last year or so but around it the infrastructure the support infrastructure so that when people come here they can understand these sites that's what changes so when you walk down the path in front of the cemetery to go into the original entrance way there are markers indicating the number of casualties day by day so you can get a sense of the scale of losses over a particular period of the uh, of the great war And the nearby visitor centre helps too. That's a new aspect of the infrastructure to help visitors to this site. And I know many people have reservations about visitor centres, but we've got to remember that not everyone comes to places like Flanders with a lot of facts in their pocket. They're coming here to discover things and that centres like this can help point them in the direction of stories that otherwise they would miss. And this one does a very good job in that, explaining the role of the medical services, the chain of evacuation, the importance of women and their role on the battlefield. So it shows that centres like this do have a role to play. And no doubt, going forward, we'll probably see them on other battlefields, because surely we don't want forgotten fronts to remain forgotten forever. And then heading across the battlefields, we stopped at the Menin Gates during the daytime hours. Normally we're there for the last post in the evening. But to stand there and walk round it during the daylight hours and hear from the Commission staff about the challenges of looking after a memorial of this size in an active working town where people live and go about their business is an interesting one. And it's about to, like Thiepval, undergo some renovations, which will mean that access will be restricted for a while. The last post, of course, will continue. But the memorial is now nearly a century old, and it needs renovation. None of these things stand still, as we've said several times in this podcast already. But from the Menin Gate, our endpoint really could only be one place. On a tour of the silent cities, we had to end at the largest of them all. Tynecott. Standing there on a summer's afternoon with the sunshine reflecting off the headstones, groups of people looking in awe at the sheer scale of the casualties that are represented on this Flanders hillside. We've looked at this cemetery and the fighting at Passchendaele in depth on this podcast, but this was a suitable and fitting place to end our return to the silent cities. This vast city of the dead, with almost 12,000 graves, represents not just the British and Commonwealth soldiers who came to fight in Flanders during the Great War, not just the dead, not just those who lived beyond this war and went home, not just the families and the women who had to deal with the echoes of the deaths of these men beyond these battlefields. It represents so much more. If the cemeteries, the silent cities, act as those beacons across that landscape, here is the largest beacon of them all. Here 
a vast, vast silent city whose streets are paved with the names of the fallen and the names of the regiments and the dates of so many battles over so many years across Flanders fields. Whether we begin or we end our journey across this landscape, what we perhaps find here at Tyne Cot, looking back towards the spires of Ypres, that very symbol of the Great War, and everything that was lost, and everything that rose again from its ashes, what we find is that the paths of that great conflict meet here, right here, on the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>